So I'll read in English from the uh, same passage, Luke 18. We'll read the first eight verses of this parable. So a parable, of course, is a uh, fictional story that Jesus tells, but it's a story that he tells in order to teach important truths about his kingdom. And in this story, Jesus is teaching us something about prayer, and it comes on the heels of teaching about the last days, and we'll refer to that briefly as we introduce the sermon But for now, we'll read this parable together, and I'm just going to set this thing aside lest I knock it while I'm reading. Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, And there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he really find faith on the earth? So there ends the parable that Jesus gives us. You know, we meet each other and we often say, hey, how are you doing? And what do we say? We say, oh, good. I'm doing fine. Well, we probably say that because we're happy to see each other and we're doing well at that moment because we're glad to see one another. But if we go for a walk and say, how are you doing? Probably each one of us would, as we talk, not take long before we start unburdening some kind of struggle. Because, you know, God is good all the time. But life is just plain hard a lot of the time, isn't it? And... Jesus knows that, and we shouldn't be surprised because we're not in heaven yet. We're living in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And Jesus, in the verses that precede this parable, is talking about what's called the last days. These times in which we're living now, between his first and second coming. And he compares them to the days in which Noah and Lot lived. And what were the days of Noah and the days of Lot like? They weren't that great. Noah and his family totaled eight people. And that was the extent of the church in Noah's day. Eight people, Noah and his family, that's it. 
And he was surrounded by unbelief. God told him to build an ark because there was judgment coming. And a lot of people just mocked him and said, as if Noah, God's going to send enough water to turn the earth into an ocean and kill us all? Yeah, right, you go ahead and build your boat. And they mocked him. You're nuts to build a boat. There's no water within 100 miles. Or you think of Lot's day. Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was an LGBT plus community that was even worse than ours is today. They weren't just pushing for rainbow sidewalks. They were pushing down the door of Lot's house because the men of the city wanted to have sex with the male visitors that were in his house. See, life back then wasn't easy. It was hard. And Jesus compares life for us now to life like it was for them. It was hard. There was opposition. There was mockery. People hated God. They didn't care about his plan, his will, and how he wanted them to live. And to add to the struggles and hardships of life, evil's not just out there in the world. Isn't there evil right in here that we struggle against? Right? And Noah and Lot had the same thing. Their sin that they gave into was, what, drunkenness, right? Noah, the world's first vintner, became the world's first drunk. Lot did the same thing, and then that led to incest. Life isn't easy. Sin in here, sin out there. How do we live amidst these hardships? Jesus says in verse 1, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. In the midst of living with our own sin and in the sinful world, one of the key things, pray. So I want to consider this parable about prayer. And first of all, we'll consider a problem that we have with persevering in prayer. And then we'll look at the parable. And then we'll look at two main points Jesus makes in it. Now, we all know that we should pray without ceasing. Paul tells us that in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. And we know we should keep praying for ourselves amidst our struggle with sin. We know we should pray for our family members, our children, our parents, for the world, for the unbelieving people we know, for our country. But, I don't know about you, but for me, I find I can pray about these things for a while, and then I kind of lose heart, and I stop praying for those things or those people, because I think, huh, well, nothing's changing. Right? We can pray and thank God for the food before every meal, but do we persevere in praying for these needs? That's the question. We can pray for lost people that we know who don't know Jesus to come to faith in him. Or a spouse to come to faith in Jesus. Or we can pray for victory over this sin that keeps defeating us. And after a while, when we don't see the answer we want, when we don't see them come to faith in Christ, when we don't see that victory, we can lose heart and we can give up praying. And then we can wonder, is God really even hearing me? Does God really care? You see, we're not alone in this struggle because the psalmist, Asaph, in Psalm 73, had this same struggle. He was a believer, and the Holy Spirit inspired Asaph to write numerous psalms and proverbs. He prayed, he went to church, he lived an obedient life. But life was hard for him. Every day was a struggle. He looked around at the world out there and said, these people who don't go to church, they don't listen to God, they don't pray, but yet life is easy for them. 
He looks around in verse 3, he's like, the wicked are prospering. They don't even pray, but they prosper. I got all kinds of troubles and struggles, but they don't have that. They're always at ease, they increase in riches. And then he concludes, surely in vain I've kept myself clean. Surely in vain I try to not do what the world does. Surely in vain I've prayed to God. And amidst all these ongoing difficulties, he concluded, I may as well give up. He lost heart and he almost lost his faith. Well, that can happen to us too as we struggle and as we pray and we don't get the kind of answer we want. Jesus wants to encourage us, though, to keep praying. Jesus says to us, you're not alone in your struggle. You're not alone in thinking life can be hard and it's hard to keep on praying. His disciples experienced those same struggles. Back in Luke chapter 10, he told them a parable of the persistent friend at midnight to encourage them to persevere in prayer. Same main point. And now in chapter 18, Jesus realizes, oh, his disciples must have lost heart. I've got to encourage them again to persevere in prayer. And so he tells them another parable. He gives this parable about persevering. He says in verse 2, in a certain city there's a judge. And this judge was a terrible man. He's a villain. He's a scoundrel. He doesn't fear God. And he couldn't care less about anybody else in the city. He was happy to have his position of authority, and he used it to serve himself, and that's it. He was dishonest. He would accept bribes. He was selfish. The only way you could get him to do something for you is if he would benefit himself somehow. And then you have this widow. This poor widow is a victim of some kind of injustice. We're not exactly sure what kind of injustice, In Luke 20, verse 47, Jesus warns people to watch out for religious leaders who, among other things, devour widows' houses. In other words, steal from widows what little they might have left after their husband dies. So maybe she got scammed by some religious leaders. We don't know. But she's a genuine victim. And she has no social status. Women in that day couldn't have access to the courts. She had no husband. No male family members. So she had no one to go to court for her. She's vulnerable. She's helpless. She's a victim. But how is she going to get justice? Well, she approached this judge to seek not revenge, but the rightly deserved justice. And she goes alone because she has no one to go to bat for her. What are her chances of getting anywhere? This widow... Vulnerable, helpless, going to this terrible, selfish, unjust judge. Jesus' listeners all know that her chances of getting anywhere with him are zip, zilch, zero. What does he care? He's not going to do anything for her. The only way to get somewhere with a judge like that is either to bribe him, to threaten him, or to plead with him. But she's a widow. She's got nothing. She can't bribe him. She has no money or material possessions. She's a woman, an old woman, a widowed woman. She can't threaten him. What's she going to do? He's got the protection of the law behind him. And as for her going to plead with this judge, what's the point? This judge doesn't care about other people. So Jesus listening to her thinking, why should she go and plead? She's not going to give him the time of day. There's nothing in it for him. 
There's nothing to gain if he helps her. But she goes anyway. Verse 4 says, initially she doesn't get anywhere. The judge keeps ignoring her, pushing her off. But verse 5, Jesus says, she keeps going to this judge. She persists. Doesn't matter. He's not listening. I don't, doesn't matter. I'm going to go anyway. And she kept going and going and going so much that she started annoying the judge and troubling him. And then the judge gets weary. The word there is, that's used for weary literally means he's getting beaten down or getting a black eye from this widow because she keeps coming and persistently asking for justice. The picture that Jesus paints is that this woman is confronting this judge day in, day out, in the courtroom in front of his colleagues, out on the street after work, in the market on his way home, and then at the door of his house, just begging him for justice. Her chances of getting the judge's ear and getting justice are next to nothing, but she knew the power of persistent pleading. She knew the power of going again and again and again. And she was persistent, and it paid off. Finally, the judge gave her the justice she was asking for. Not because he wanted to help her, but because he just wanted to get rid of her. That's the parable. This nameless widow goes to this unjust judge, and because she perseveres, she gets what she asked for. And then in the third point, we want to consider... Two main lessons Jesus is trying to teach us about persevering in prayer. And these two lessons come from the two main characters in the parable. By way of contrast, the judge tells us something about God. And then the widow tells us something about the character of our prayer. So the judge tells us something about the character of the God we pray to. The widow tells us something about the character of our prayers. It might be surprising, but Jesus draws a comparison between the judge and God in verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and compare him to God and what you know about God and what God is like. We need to be clear, the comparison is a comparison of complete contrast. The judge and God are as opposite each other, as dark is from night, as black is from white. The judge couldn't care less about righteousness and justice. But the Psalms tell us again and again, God loves righteousness and justice. He works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. The works of his hands are faithful and just. He defends the cause of the widow and the fatherless. We see more contrast when we think of how that judge is not good man at all. He's not caring. He is self-serving. But God? What does scripture tell us about God? He is good. He's the essence of everything good. His name is good. What he does is good. And Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and has compassion on all he has made. We see further contrasts when we consider how the judge won't listen to people. Not unless you pester them to the point of annoying them. But is God like that? Do we have to pester God and nag him in order to get him to listen to us? No. What does the Bible say? It says he hears your quiet cry. He sees that tear that you shed. Psalm 34 verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord 
are on the righteous. And he is attentive to not your nagging plea. No, he's attentive to your cry. Or look at Psalm 56 verse 8. It tells us that God sees our tears. You're struggling, you're crying alone and no one else sees? God sees. It says, the psalmist says, you put my tears into your bottle. You record them in your book. He notices. And the final contrast between God's character and the judge is seen in that judge's selfishness and God's selflessness. The judge, he's not going to help you unless he benefits somehow. If it's going to cost him time and energy to help you out, forget it. Not unless he's going to get something. But what about God? Is he like that? No. He is a giving God. God the Father gave his son Jesus for us. Did we deserve it? No. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. Did we deserve it? No, but he gave his life. And Romans 8 verse 32 says, If God did not spare his own son Jesus for us, then won't God give us everything else we need? And the answer is yes, absolutely he will. You see, God stands as a complete contrast to the unjust judge. And Jesus is saying, if the persistent pleading of that widow could get her the justice she sought from the unjust, crusty old judge, then how much more will your heavenly Father, who is good and gracious and loves justice and is compassionate and hears your cry, how much more will he listen to you and answer you? And then Jesus says, how much more will this good, gracious, caring God, in verse 7, respond to the prayers of his own elect. That word elect is filled with meaning. It reminds us that we're not some nameless individuals that God just sees as some strangers among the mass of humanity. No, if you're trusting in Jesus, then he has known you by name and chosen you before the foundation of the world. When you come to him in prayer, you are one of the elect, one of the ones he chose before he even created you. This widow, the judge didn't even know her name. Jesus knows you by name. And when you go to him, he loves to hear from you. And he knows who's talking to him. And he will answer. That's the point Jesus is making. Hear what the unjust judge said. He finally gave the widow the justice she asked for. Will not God avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night? And the expected answer is... Yes, of course he will. But then here comes the struggle. You say, yeah, but I've been praying for days. I've been praying for weeks. I've been praying for months for this person or that problem. And I still haven't got an answer. I'm not sure God is hearing me. We need to remember there's only one reason that God won't hear or answer our prayers. And that is if we are walking willingly in unrepentant sin. But if you repent of your sin and you're looking to Jesus, he will hear and he will answer. It's just that sometimes his answer is, not yet, 
or no? And because that's not the answer we were looking for, or it's not the answer in the time frame that we were wanting, we think he's not actually answering. Consider for a moment God's answers when he says, not yet or not now. That brings up the matter of the timing of God answering. It's easy to read past it, but in verse 7, Jesus uses the phrase, though he bears long with them, though he bears long with his elect. Jesus is not saying God's going to ignore us or push us off like that judge. But he is saying there might be a delay in the answer. God might say to you, not yet. But if God says not yet, not now, he's got a good reason for it. You know, we get everything in an instant, right? Get money in an instant. Get music and movies in an instant all online. Get instant food at the drive-thru. God doesn't answer us instantly always. But not because he's a bad God. Just because he maybe wants us to mature in our faith. Or grow. Or whatever reason he might have. 2 Peter 3 verse 8 says, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. God's sense of timing is different than ours. What seems like months to us might be a second to God. He's in no hurry He says, not yet, just wait. It's not that I'm not hearing you. When we look at verse 8, we might also still think, though, that Jesus is supposed to answer us sooner, that God is supposed to answer us sooner, because it uses the word speedily. In verse 8, it says, I tell you, God will avenge them speedily. But we need to note that the word speedily does not mean immediately. There's a big difference. In the context of this parable, Jesus is saying, I'm going to avenge my elect. I'm going to bring them justice by punishing their enemies. But that's going to happen when I return again on the clouds of glory. And that's who knows how far into the future. But when Jesus comes again, then he will immediately, he will speedily bring about justice. Just as quickly as the flood came and washed away the wicked in uh, in Noah's day, Just as quickly as fire fell from heaven and destroyed the wicked in Lot's day, so speedily will Jesus bring fire from heaven to devour the wicked and judge them and avenge his elect when he returns. So sometimes God says not yet, but that is an answer. Other times he says no, and sometimes we act as if God's no means he's not answering at all, but You know what? God often says no to his children. Sometimes a dad says no to his child. You ask him for something, he says no. But it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he does love you and he knows it's bad for you or he wants you to mature or grow or know you're not responsible enough yet for certain privileges. God often gives us no's. And he gave the Apostle Paul a no. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that was, Was it some kind of physical problem? Was it some kind of spiritual uh, ailment? Hardship, weakness of faith? We don't know. But he pleaded persistently with God. Three times he asked God, please remove this thorn in my flesh. And God said, no, Paul. But he did say, yes, my grace is sufficient for you. No, I won't remove that thorn, but yes, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll strengthen you, I'll sustain you. 
We need to remember that when we pray. Sometimes God isn't going to remove our burden. But he is going to be there with us to help us with the burden. You know, God also said no to Jesus. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he had the cross in view. And he knew that that night he's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. Then be arrested, then be beaten, spit upon, flogged. And that suffering will end with that horrible death of crucifixion. Now that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was Jesus knew that when he was on that cross, he would be experiencing the wrath of God. And he knew how great that wrath would be. Because on the cross, you know, have you ever taken a magnifying glass and used it to concentrate the sunlight on a pile of leaves or something outside? Don't do this if you haven't asked your parents' permission and they're not with you. But if you take a magnifying glass and you put it outside on a sunny day and let the sunlight filter through it and focus it on the ground, all that sunlight is concentrated through the magnifying glass and it gets so hot on the ground it lights a fire. You see, the cross was a time when God is pouring out, concentrating all his wrath against all my sin, against all your sin, against all the sin of everybody who believes in him, concentrating it on Jesus on the cross. And the thought of that made Jesus filled with anguish. He sweat, as it were, drops of blood, and he said, Father, please, if it's at all possible, let this cup of your wrath pass by me. Don't let me have to endure this. But... Your will be done. How did God answer Jesus' prayer? He said, no, my son. I must pour this cup of my wrath out upon you. Because that's the only way I can forgive my people. It's the only way I can redeem them. And you know what? It's because God said no to Jesus that he can say yes to every one of us who calls upon him. We're too filthy with sin to have God hear us. But through the blood of Jesus, which he shed, we can pray to him anytime, anywhere, and he will hear and he will answer because through his blood he cleanses us of sin. God's no to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane means he can say yes to us every time we pray to him. Well, we've considered the character of our God. He's a good God. He's not like that unjust judge. And Jesus says, pray to that father. Pray to him and he will answer. Sometimes he'll say not yet. Sometimes he'll say no, but he'll always answer. Then the second thing that Jesus really teaches us in this parable, after teaching us about the character of God, is he teaches us about the character of our prayers. And he says, you know how that widow was persistent in praying, or sorry, in pleading with the judge? He says, you be just as persistent in praying to the Father. Keep praying. Keep asking. If God gives you a not yet, ask him then for patience. If he gives you a no, say then God, if you're not going to ease the burden, then give me endurance. And he will. It's that lost family member, that family member who doesn't believe in Jesus. Keep praying. If he can change the Apostle Paul... He can change anybody. Persist in praying. Your struggle against sin. You sinned again and you can't believe what you did. Call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am sorry. I've grieved you. Please forgive me. You know what? 
You do that with a genuine heart, he will forgive you. Because he loves you and he died for you. He took the wrath we deserve when he was on the cross. God said no to Jesus when he asked to avoid the cross so that he can say yes to us every time we ask for forgiveness. Now, lest we think that prayer is some kind of burdensome work, we need to just remind ourselves quickly, what is prayer? When he says persevere in prayer, men ought to always pray and never lose heart. Does he mean we always have to sit there with our hands folded and our eyes closed? No. Jesus is talking, first and foremost, not about the posture of our body, but the posture of our heart. And he's saying, always have your heart directed to me. There's a beautiful hymn that gives a definition of prayer, and it goes like this. Prayer is the soul's sincere desire, unuttered or unexpressed. So you can be praying to God without speaking a word. Prayer is the burden of a sigh. God, I'm exhausted, help me. That sigh, God understands that language, and it can be a prayer if it's directed to him. The falling of a tear can be a prayer. God sees that you're sad. Then it goes on to say, prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. You know, if you see somebody in the hospital on life support, You might have an oxygen mask hooked up with hoses to the oxygen tank. What happens if you disconnect that mask? They die. That oxygen and those oxygen lines are their lifeline for physical life. Well, you know what? Prayer is our lifeline. It's our spiritual lifeline. It's our vital breath. You stop praying, you spiritually die. Because the two are interlinked. St. Augustine said, when faith fails, prayer dies. But the opposite is also true. When prayer fails, faith dies. The two are interlinked. So keep looking to God amidst whatever struggles you have, amidst whatever joys you have. Thank him for the joys. Call out to him amidst the struggles. The two are totally interlinked. God will always answer your prayer. Continual prayer is not only the evidence of faith, it's the means by which God will keep you in the faith till he comes again. And so when Jesus concludes this parable, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? He doesn't mean, is there going to be a church left? Will the wickedness win out? No, because he promised He's going to preserve his church till he comes again. There's no question about that. His question to us is, when he returns, or when we die, will we be found in the faith? Will we be praying? Will we be believing? And that's the question he leaves with us, and he tells us, you always ought to pray, never lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encouragement to pray. Thank you that through Jesus, you always hear our prayers. Thank you that you are such a good and a gracious and a loving God. Thank you that we don't have to nag you in order to gain your ear. We have to but 
have our heart look in your direction and you hear us. We don't even have to actually utter a word and you hear us. Lord, help us to be people of prayer. Encourage us to persevere in praying and to never lose heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.